Good morning once again, brothers and sisters. God's word to us this morning comes from 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of Scripture, either your own that you brought, or a phone or a tablet, or the Bible on the pew in front of you, and look at it with us. As uh, typically, as I preach, the main passage I will not put up on the screen. I'd encourage you to look, up, look at it in your own copy of Scripture. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 16 here in just a moment. Now, I have to be honest with you, today's passage is a difficult one. It's a difficult one because it's difficult to interpret and to be sure that you've interpreted it correctly. And then uh, not only that, but to stand up here and, and to teach it after you have tried to interpret it correctly. Now, if you've read through the Bible or any significant portion of your Bible, you know that we come to passages like this from time to time, don't we? Passages that are not uh, easily interpreted. It's not readily apparent what the interpretation should be. Perhaps there are some options. Now, when you come to a passage like this, to a difficult passage, oftentimes there are two ways that preachers and teachers in churches will, will deal with passages like this, with the difficult ones. And both of these ways to deal with them are unhealthy for the congregation. So, one way to deal with a difficult passage, if you're a preacher or a teacher, is to just avoid it altogether. Avoid the difficult passages. Stick to the passages that are more cut and dry. But, you see, this teaches people in their own Bible reading not to wrestle with the text. It teaches people to skip over the parts that you don't understand, to skip over the parts that are hard. But God wants us to wrestle with the Bible. God wants us to be challenged. God wants to put us out of our comfort zones as we read Scripture. I mean, think about this. If this is truly a book filled with the words of the eternal creator of the universe, we should expect to come upon stuff that confuses us. We're humans. We're finite. We should expect this. We should expect to find things that challenge us, things that make us uncomfortable. We should expect that when we, as human beings, come to the words of the eternal creator of the universe. Right? And so this is just how you grow as a Christian. And so we don't want to avoid the hard passages. We want to address them. We want to try, at least, to interpret these and to get what God has for us out of them. But the second way that you could deal with a hard passage in an unhealthy way, and I've seen preachers do this before, and it's turned me off greatly, is you can act like the interpretation is obvious and that anyone who disagrees with you is clearly wrong. And this has always turned me off because if I can't see in here what, what you're telling me and you act like it's obvious, well, either I'm not smart or you're taking the easy way out, right? It's not healthy for a congregation to act like the interpretation of a hard passage is obvious. This teaches people a kind of arrogance to approaching the Bible. And when we really want people to approach it in humility. We want to be humble as we approach Scripture. I don't want to give you the impression that either hard passages are, are easy, and it's obvious, and if you don't know it, you're wrong, or you might sit back there and say, well, I must not be very smart. I must not be capable of interpreting the Bible if he finds this hard passage so easy, whatever preacher or teacher you're listening to. 
We need to encourage humility as we come to the Scriptures. I'm a fallible human being. There's always a chance that I have gotten something wrong when it comes to the Bible. There's always that chance, right? And usually when someone teaches like, like what we've been talking about, like it's obvious, they just expect people to swallow whatever interpretation they're giving because they're the preacher and you know, you're just supposed to trust them. But I want to encourage you, you all, to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Scripture tells us the Bereans heard Paul's teaching with eagerness, but then they went back to the Bible to check to see whether what he was saying was biblical or not. They were holding him accountable to Scripture, and you should do the same thing for me or for anyone who stands in this pulpit or anyone who teaches a Sunday school class. Right? We are human beings passing along the Word of God. Yes, I spend time and labor over this stuff, but you need to go to the Scriptures yourself to see if what we are saying up here from the pulpit is actually biblical. And I pray that if it is not, if anything that I say is not biblical, I pray that God would wipe it from your minds or you would come up to me afterward and say, look at this. This is not what God, God's Word says. Okay? And so we are all coming to the Word of God in humility, seeking to understand what He has for us, readily acknowledging that some passages are harder than others. And today is one of those. So, as we go through this difficult passage today, I want to show my work in a sense. Remember in school, your math teacher used to say, you know, do this problem, give me the answer, but show your work. Right? I want to try to show my work in a sense so that you can see how I come to the interpretation that I got. So you can see I'm not pulling it out of thin air. But second, also, so that you can see that you could have come to this interpretation yourself. It doesn't take an expert to interpret the Bible, right? All it takes is a brain and a willing heart. And so let's get into it. So one of the harder passages in 1 John, 1 John 5, 16 through 17. Here's what it reads in the ESV. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask... And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, and so we're just looking at these two verses today. What can we take away from them? Well, first of all, one thing we can take away that seems pretty clear is that not all sin is equal in God's eyes. Not all sin is equal in God's eyes. Sometimes you will hear people saying this, that all sin is the same in the eyes of God. All sin is equal in God's eyes. Well, John is clearly talking about sin in two different categories here. There's sin that leads to death, and there's sin that does not lead to death. And so the first thing we take away here is, even before we understand what this sin that leads to death is, the first thing we take away is, not all sin is equal in God's eyes. Now, yes, he does say all wrongdoing is sin, right? John, in the passage, he says all wrongdoing is sin, right? So there is a sense in which all sins have a certain weight to them, no matter what kind of sin they are. Right? It only takes one sin to condemn any of us to hell. Okay? Both lying and murder alike are enough to condemn us. This is why we all need Christ. Right? 
all of us stand equally condemned before God. No matter what sins we have committed, all of us are in that same boat. There is a sense also in which there are no little sins. There is a sense in which there are no little sins. Every sin is an offense against an infinitely holy and righteous God. And so we acknowledge those things, but it is not biblically accurate, nor is it helpful in everyday conversations to say all sin is the same in God's eyes. That is not the picture we get from Scripture. First of all, not all sins have the same earthly consequences. Right? And not only do we recognize this, but God recognizes this. Not all sins have the same earthly consequences. For example, lust versus adultery. Now, even though Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, talks about that you can commit adultery in your heart, so to speak, by having lustful thoughts of someone who is not your spouse, right? we would never, though, for instance, remove an elder from serving because of lustful thoughts. But we would, however, have to remove an elder or a minister who commits adultery on their wife, right? There's, there's a difference between the earthly consequences of these sins. Here's another example. I think all of us would agree that there's a big difference between stealing because you are hungry versus cheating your poor employees out of fair wages so that you can have a second home on the beach, right? All of us would agree there's a moral difference there, and I'm comfortable in saying that God would agree that there is a difference there. Right? Furthermore, Jesus teaches about this kind of thing, that there's a different degree to some sins than others. Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 12 about degrees of punishment in eternity, degrees of punishment in hell. Luke chapter 12, verse 47, he says, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, that servant will receive a severe beating but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Right? You see the, the difference that Jesus talks about there between knowingly sinning and sinning. Sin that deserves a beating, but it's unknowing. Jesus talks about in Matthew's chapter 10 and 11, how there will be certain cities. He pronounces woes to certain cities that he had come to and preached to and done miracles in. And he says, woe to you, cities, because it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Why? Because you had Jesus there and you denied him. Right? He says, more bearable on the day of judgment than for certain cities than others. Or take John 19. If you remember the conversation that Jesus had with Pilate, the Roman ruler, right before they crucified him. Right? He's with Pilate. In John 19, he's talking personally to him. And Jesus says to him, John 19, 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The greater sin, right? So even Jesus makes a delineation in his teaching and in his conversations of some kinds of sins versus others. Think about it. Jesus treated the humiliated tax collector and the prostitute much different than the spiritually prideful Pharisees, did he not? And furthermore, Scripture makes a distinction between intentional 
or what's sometimes in the Old Testament called high-handed sins, versus unintentional sins committed in a moment of foolishness or impatience or even ignorance. And so, all this to say, everyone by default stands condemned before God apart from Christ. Right? Everyone apart from Christ by default stands condemned before God, no matter what sins they've committed. But it is neither biblical nor helpful to say that all sin is equal in God's eyes. That is not the teaching that we get from Scripture And that's something that we can kind of fall into saying, I think many times with a good heart, but we want to talk in such a way that reflects what the Bible actually teaches, okay? And so that's the first thing I think we can take away from this passage. But now I want to look at two different aspects of this passage. Number one is sin that leads to death, and number two is prayer that leads to life, okay? Sin that leads to death, and then after that, prayer that leads to life. So first, sin that leads to death. What is John talking about in this passage when he says there is sin that leads to death? What's he talking about? Now, I want you to notice in the ESV, the English Standard Version, and the Christian Standard Bible, we see the phrase as sin that leads to death. And I think this is the best translation of the Greek. We'll get into this here in just a second. Again, I told you this is a hard passage. But if you're reading out of an NIV, perhaps, this morning, uh, or, or another translation, you might see that phrase rendered, a sin that leads to death. There is a sin that leads to death. Now, that little article, a, it makes all the difference in the world. Why? Well, because if there is a sin that leads to death, then we're talking about a particular sin, the particular sin. Perhaps it's the unforgivable sin. But on the other hand, if John is saying there is sin that leads to death. Well, that's, that could be much different than a particular sin that leads to death. It's just there is a type of sinning that leads to death. Do you see how the difference could go either way there? In the Greek, originally, when this is written in Greek, the New Testament, you might not know a thing about Greek, but one thing you can understand this morning is when something is put down in the Greek, it's a noun, Often it has what we call a definite article in front of it, like the, you know, it has a definite article in front of it. But in the Greek, there are nouns that can be translated either with an A in front of it or nothing in front of it. So, for instance, in John 1, it says in the beginning, John 1, 1, in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God, right? And we read that verse and we think, yeah, Jesus is God. But guess what? If you have a Mormon come to your door and explain that passage to you and you start to get into Greek with them, they will tell you that because of this little nuance in New Testament Greek, they will tell you that they believe that passage means the Word was with God and the Word was a God. Just one of many. A God. Right? That would change everything. The Word is not the God. Jesus is not the God. He's a God. He's one of many gods, okay? So this is how the Greek language sometimes works. And in translation, you have to make a decision based on the context. Is this sin that leads to death, or is it a sin that leads to death? Right? And I think based on the context, as much as I've studied this passage, I think the best best translation is, this is talking about sin that leads to death. Why is that important? Because I don't think it's talking about the unforgivable sin. I don't think you need to be sitting here reading this passage, racking your brain, wondering, have I committed the sin that leads to death? 
I do not think that's what John is teaching here. Let me, let me show you Romans 6, verse 16. A similar phrase. Don't turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Romans 6, 16. Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, that's, that's, that same phrase there, leads to death, is right there. and He's talking about sin, sin as a whole that leads to death. And so I do not think John is saying here that there is a particular sin that leads to death. I think what he's saying is there is a type of sinning that leads to death. There is a way that you can sin that leads to death. Now, what is that? We'll get into it here in just a second. But notice also what he says. He says sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. Okay, this is a gradual walking away from the Lord that he's talking about. Gradual. Spiritual death does not happen in one moment from one decision. It's gradual. The Catholic Church, from this passage, teaches that there are two different categories of sin. Mortal sins and venial sins, according to the Catholic Church. Right? Mortal sins are the ones that end in death, and venial sins are the ones that don't lead to death. Now, on the surface, that's fine as it goes. It seems like John himself creates two categories, but... The Catholic Church takes this passage and they teach that if you commit a mortal sin, you automatically lose your salvation. If you commit one of these mortal sins, you lose your salvation immediately. And then you have to perhaps do penance and all these ritual requirements to get it back. But then there are cases where you couldn't get it back. You could sin and in such a way lose your salvation forever immediately. That is not what the Bible teaches. Over the course of Scripture, God has taught us time and time again, the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sins. And when you are baptized into Jesus' death, you are baptized for past, present, and future sins. And so that if you commit a sin today, you do not lose your salvation until you pray for forgiveness and then you get it back. But then if you commit a sin later in the day, you lose your salvation until you pray for forgiveness and then you get it back. No, you are justified in Christ unless you walk away from Christ. And so there is a type of sinning that can cause you to lose your salvation. But you do not lose your salvation every time you sin. Does that make sense? Does the, the difference there make sense? And so death here in our passage is something that happens over the course of many decisions to turn away from the Lord, to intentionally walk contrary to His law. We've talked about conscience before in our series on 1 John. A conscience is not seared in a moment. It takes continually going against your conscience to sear it. A heart is not hardened in a moment. It's a gradual process. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. It says, Hebrews 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, do you see that phrase? You see how helpful that is? If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you've been with us for most of these sermons on 1 John, you've seen time and time again in the context of this letter, John has already told us 
there are certain things that can lead you away from the Lord. John's already told us that in 1 John. Refusing to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, refusing to obey God's commandments, refusing to believe in Jesus as God's Son, these things lead to death. And so we need to take a warning from this passage today. All of us, we need to take a warning from this passage today because there is a type of sinning that leads to death, and we need to be warned against it. Some of us in here need to hear a warning this morning, a warning in love. Some of you in here this morning need to hear this. If you keep looking at pornography, you will not see eternal life. If you keep looking at pornography, you will not see eternal life. You cannot make peace with sin and see God. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. Some others in here this morning might need to hear this one. If you hold on to your bitterness and refuse to forgive that person who wronged you, you will not see eternal life. The Bible says God will not forgive us if we do not forgive those who sin against us. And some of you this morning might need to hear this warning. And again, it's a warning out of love. If you keep resisting the Holy Spirit's pull on your heart and you do not give your life to Jesus Christ, you will go to hell. You will not see eternal life. Now these warnings, many would say they're harsh. But I assure you at the judgment day, these kinds of warnings will be looked back on as the most loving kind there is. Warning against eternal death. And so we need to take this warning from John this morning. There is sin that leads to death. And if we walk in that sin, it will lead to our spiritual death for all eternity. But finally, we need to look at the prayer that leads to life. The prayer that leads to life. Look at our passage one more time, those two verses. Notice what he says about prayer. He says, If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. And watch what he says here. I do not say that one should pray for that. All right, so what are we to make of this? Well, first, we need to ask this question. What does John mean at the end of verse 16 when he says, I do not say one should pray for that? I mean, that's one of the reasons this is one of the most hard passages to interpret in the book. What does John mean when he says, I do not say one should pray for that? for the sin that leads to death. Well, notice what he's not saying. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, I forbid you to pray for that. He didn't say that. He did not say, I forbid you to pray for that. He's simply saying, I'm not going to go so far as to command you to pray for that. Right? There could be, there could be a point where someone has walked in rebellion against the Lord for so long, and you have prayed for them, and you have reached out to them, and you have done all you can, there could be a point to where you stop praying for someone. 
I mean, think about it. You, you can't pray for every single person that has ever been on your prayer list for your entire life. I have to be honest. I do not pray every day for every person that I've ever told I was going to pray for them. There have been people that were on my prayer list for a time, and yet I, I stopped praying for them. Now, I will say this as well, though. When I became a Christian when I was 13 years old, I had a friend then and still a friend now that I have prayed for for 21 years to become a Christian, and he has not yet become a Christian. I've sat down and I have shared the gospel of Jesus with this person one-on-one probably five times, and they have, they have not accepted the Lord. And I'm here to tell you, I will never stop praying for that guy. I will never stop praying that he comes to the Lord. I will pray till the day I die that he comes to the Lord. But there could be a point for someone to where you stop praying for them because they are on such a strong-willed road walking toward death and away from the Lord. God actually told Jeremiah not to pray for someone at one point. God told Jeremiah not to pray for people. Jeremiah 14, starting in verse 11, the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. This is the Israelites after they had walked away from the Lord time and time and time and time and time again. They had heard the warnings of the Lord and brushed them aside. They knew the commands of the Lord and intentionally disobeyed them time and time again. And God says to Jeremiah, do not pray for these people. That's a hard word. And so there could be a point to where we stop praying for someone. And that's what John is saying here. He's not saying, I forbid you to pray for anyone. And we also have to recognize it's very hard for us to know the hearts of someone else. How do you know whether someone has reached this point? We don't. But John is saying there's a difference between a brother who commits a sin not leading to death and someone who is committing sin that leads to death, walking intentionally away from the Lord. But second, also notice, also notice in the same verse, while he does not command us to pray for those who are committing sin leading to death, he does command us to pray for people who are committing sins that do not lead to death. He commands us to pray for them. Notice that. We are commanded to pray for our brothers and sisters who commit sins that do not lead to death. Our prayer requests in the church tend to be almost 100% about health issues and grief. Have you noticed that? When we ask for prayer requests in the church, it's almost 100% health issues and grief. Health issues and grief. Almost 100%. We need to be praying for one another spiritually. We need to be praying for one another's walk with the Lord. Now, I understand some of these things are not, you know, the the public things to bring up in, in the prayer request time. I get that. But we need to be praying for one another's walk with the Lord. If you see one of your brothers and sisters in Christ committing sin, God commands you to pray for them. Do not look down upon them. Do not judge them. Pray for them. Our heart should go out to that person that we see committing sin. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love them? Or are you here to feel feel better about yourself? There's a big difference there. Are you here because you're committed to a family? Or are you coming to church so that you can feel better about yourself? Do you turn your nose up at people when you see them sin? 
Do you say in your heart, I can't believe they would do that. I hope God teaches them a lesson. When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed for those who were killing him and mocking him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we see our brother and sister in Christ commit a sin, we should pray for them like we would want to have someone pray for us. Have you ever sinned? I have. How do I want people to pray for me? How do I want people to think of me? What kind of patience do I hope people have with me? Because I don't always live up to the standard of God's word. We should pray for them like we would want them to pray for us. God, please don't hold this against them. God, please open their eyes and help them to see, help them to see the truth, the compassion that we should have when we see others sin is illustrated in Ecclesiastes 7. Listen to this verse from Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 21. It says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Our hearts should go out in compassion when we see our brother or sister commit a sin. Rather than judging them, we should pray for them. And so, this morning, this is a hard passage. It is. I, I hope you've seen the, the way that I try to interpret this and the way that I believe John is teaching us. But more than anything, I hope you come away with the warnings against the sin that leads to death. Most importantly this morning, there could not be a more serious and important warning for any of us than the warning that eternity is coming. The day is coming when there are no more second chances. The day is coming when Christ returns and some will rejoice at his, turn, at his return, at his coming, and some, the Bible says, will wail. Some will wail. Why? Because they know in that moment their eternal destiny is sealed. Do not be in that group. Do not continually turn away from the tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart. Do not say, I can put this off until later. You do not know when you will die. You do not know when Jesus will return. But not only that, you do not know if later in your life you will actually have a heart that is soft enough to receive Christ. There are many who thought that they would give their life to Jesus on their deathbed, and then they get there, and all of the sin that has piled up over the years has caused their heart to harden in such a way that they cannot repent, that they cannot put their faith in Jesus in that moment. Don't be that person. Don't resist. Give your life to Christ while there is still time. Seek Him now while He still may be found, because the day is coming when you can't. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, our loving and gracious Father, thank you for your word to us and thank you for the warnings that you have given us, the gracious warnings. I thank you for the patience that you are having even now with those who have not come to know Jesus. You are patiently waiting and not sending your Son so that 
people will have a chance, so that they will have more chances to be saved. Thank you, God. You are such a great God, so wise and so holy and righteous. God, we, we trust in your word and we trust in you and we trust in you through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.